Good morning, Evergreen. If you would open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. And this chapter is a genealogy in which things look a little bit different than the way things look today. Or at least it seems like things work differently. And as I read these names, as we see these differences, we are reminded by 2 Peter chapter 3, that God is the one who's sovereign all, over all history, and that history tends to repeat itself. That God, the same God who promised to send a flood to one generation, and it seemed like God's promises were not coming to pass, we live in a very similar age, don't we? There's actually lots of parallels that we're going to explore between our age and this age in the next coming weeks as we look at the story of Noah. But we have to get to Noah first. And maybe as I'm reading these names, we can at least, when we think about this, reading each name, see God's care for his people, and that he records their names in the book of life. And what a blessing that is. Even if that's all you get out of it, that's good enough. Let's read God's holy, inerrant word. Genesis chapter 5, starting at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth fought, lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. 
Jared lived after he fathered an oak 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch lived, had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, new record, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, and from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the reading of God's holy word. When we're reading this, I don't know about you, but the first thing that sticks out to me is how long people lived. I know people who struggle to believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days. And they really stress on that, and that seems to be their object of focus. And I wonder what they would think or feel once they'd read just a couple more chapters into the book. Reading of Adam and Eve, the first two, two human beings being a supernatural creation. Their encounter with a demon-possessed snake who deceived them. And then now here, people living 900 years old. There's something that's should be obvious to us. It's not only that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That's going to be really evident as we continue reading. But also, things are not working the same way that they always have, or at least they did in the beginning. That things do not function according to that original design. You would think if we had an evolutionary history at least in the way the narrative is usually told to us, you would think that there would be this upward progression of the human race. That somehow we would be getting better and better, smarter and smarter, stronger and stronger, and maybe even live longer and longer. But we actually see that the human race is on the opposite trajectory. We see that we started off at 900 years. 
And as we continue to read through Genesis and read the genealogies, we see those years slowly getting smaller and smaller and smaller. There's a lot of differences. But there are also striking similarities. Similarities which should cause us, when we're reading, to say that this is our family history. That when we're reading of Adam and the descendants of Adam through Seth, we're reading about the family line that has produced us, the church. This is not some disconnected history, but we see the family of faith in operation. Last week, we just followed the children of Cain and saw that the children of Cain, as they moved east of Eden, far away, they did not get more holy. They got more corrupt, descending into sin quickly. And as we read in Noah's day, the world is going to get more and more corrupt to the point where Noah is going to be the last and only faithful man. But till that, till that day, Noah's day, God kept alive his church. He kept a line of faithful witnesses to himself. And that's what we're reading about. We're seeing the, the family line of faith. We're seeing the lineage of the godly. And that should have been striking to us when we, what we read last week. That God appointed another offspring in the stead of Abel. Abel was a man of faith who was martyred, not for bad works that he had done, but out of the worship that he gave to God, he was martyred. He was the first arrival to heaven, by the way. Imagine that, his surprise. But Seth was appointed after him. And after Seth and him naming his son, we're told that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That people, as it were, Isaiah 44 tells us, that, that using that same phrase, that it was as if they had written on their hand, inscribed on them, the Lord's, I belong to him. And the similarities don't end there. The similarities that start as we see the life of these saints is we see that their life is marked by the same thing that marks our life. That the Christian life is a life of waiting. That the Christian life is a life of waiting. We don't have to wait as long as these guys had to walk through life. But we can sense Lamech's final words. Looking to Noah to be the man who's out of the ground that God's going to relieve us from the curse. Relieve us from the toil. From the painful toil of our hands. Waiting causes us, probably like it did them, to question the validity of God's promises. As if God was slow to answer their situation. Waiting can feel like an eternity, especially if you don't know when the ETA is. Or when you think it's closer than it should be, when someone tells you, like, I unfortunately will arrive late to places, and that's my sin. 
If, you, if I tell you I'm going to get there at 6 o'clock and I show up at 6.15, that 15 minutes when after you thought that I was going to come is going to feel like an eternity. You're going to keep looking out the window. It might cause you frustration, and I'm sorry if I do that to you. And hopefully I won't. Hopefully I'll repent of that. It makes us agitated when we think that people are late. It tempts us to give up and to go after our own pleasures and to forsake living for God because what good use is that doing for us anyways as we wait? And what we see here, the Christian life model for us is defined by waiting patiently. Patiently in a sinful world, living a life that's defined by that faith and waiting for God to fulfill his promises. But as we wait, the problem, the where the toil comes from, where our common situation is, is that we wait while God's curse is still in effect. We wait while God's curse is still in effect. In the beginning, we're told that these are the generations of Adam that are going to follow through Seth the line of the faithful. That Adam was created in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God named them. This is humanity that belongs to God. And by the way, all humanity belongs to God. But when Adam was 130 years old, imagine that, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image. We talk about this and know this all the time. When we see children, we say, we look and we can see their father's image in them. We see their personality, their quirks, and even some of their sinful proclivities. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that if by one man's trespass death reigned through one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made sinners. Righteous. See, Romans 5 is about establishing a parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam. Just as Adam represents all his children, which is all humanity, and just as in Adam he sinned, he condemned the whole human race by one dis act of disobedience... As one act of disobedience created the many were made sinners, that is, all of us, the parallel to it is that Jesus, as the second Adam, has come to represent his people. That he was the one man who lived the life that Adam should have lived. Not only that, but he died the death that we deserve to die. And Jesus Christ, by his one act of righteousness, accomplished salvation for the world. But the point that Genesis here is making is that looking at Adam's sin, that Adam, as the root of humanity, passed on his sin nature. 
that Adam, in his one sin, brought about condemnation upon all humanity so that all die. Do we want to prove that we're under God's wrath and curse? Do you want proof that God is not, does he, that he does not take sin lightly? We all have the evidence within ourselves. We will all die one day. I know I've stated this statistic before, but just in case you forgot it, 10 out of 10 people die. Maybe, maybe you won't forget it. And you know, the, the striking thing about this to us, about this genealogy, is that they live such long lives. And honestly, we're not really told exactly why. We're just stated the length of days in a very precise measurement. We're not told exactly why. And we can think maybe about natural causes. They might have had a better diet than us, less processed food, right? They probably had a cleaner environment. Maybe the atmosphere was different. We know genetics, and from genetics, that things decay, that as mutations occur, that errors duplicate and will cause more problems than they do ben they create benefits, and that with accumulation of errors, it makes sense as a natural course of things that things would degrade. Information over time degrades. But I think that's a little bit too much of a naturalistic approach when reading the scriptures. The Bible's not interested in telling us about genetics. Even though it's part of God's creation and we have every right to go into it and look at it. And see the natural causes behind it. And the variety of ways in which people die. The reality though, is that the reason why people die... It's because of God's curse. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. We don't sin and then become sinners. We are, by nature, sinners. And what our sins are is an expression of who we are. What this means is that Seth, when he was born was born a sinner, and just like me and you, to transfer into God's kingdom had to come by faith. It had to be a work of God's grace in his heart to accomplish that. And we think to ourselves, wait, if sinners are reconciled to God by faith, why do we still die? That's really the interesting thing about this genealogy. There's other genealogies that have numbers of years, but not this repetition. Over and over and over again. Verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 14, verse 17, verse 20, verse 27, verse 31. They needed to learn the same lesson that we need to learn. Psalm 90, verse 12, tells us to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
And that's after talking about the eternality of God. Psalm 90 verses 1 through 12 speak about how God is from everlasting to everlasting. And yet you return, verse 3, man to dust. Notice who does it. Why does, the God, why does death occur? Well, Psalm 90 verse 3 says, You, speaking to God, return man to dirt. You return man to dust. Isn't that exactly what God had promised? To dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, 19. God had, in effect, postponed his judgment. In the day that they eat of it, they surely shall not die. But while he postponed it, there was still a death that they would suffer. And what we are in the waiting period has been given God's mercy and time to repent, to turn. We don't take God's slowness, or at least perceived slowness, as opportunity to sin. No, we take it for what it is, God's kindness towards sinners. That today is the day that we have, that today is the day of salvation in which we can turn from our sins and turn to the living God. God has numbered our days. They belong to him. And until God establishes, until God, all of God's promises are fulfilled and our salvation has been fully accomplished, death is still going to rule in this world. But there's hope in this world. As we wait, if we were just seeing that God's curse was in effect, we would be without hope. Because death terminates absolutely everything. And that's why it was really important for them to see, during this age, one person that didn't die. Did you notice that? And he died, and he died, and he died. And then once we get to the seventh generation, we see that Enoch walked with God. And that thus the days he, that he was 300 years old as he walked and had many other children. That he would live to be 365 years, less than half of everyone else. And then what happened? Enoch walked with God and he was not. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5, or verse 5 tells us, by faith Enoch was taken up. So that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. The same thing actually happened to another prophet, the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We see Elijah taken up in a whirlwind. And then once they send out the search party, guess what? They don't find him. Why? Because, verses 15 through 18 of 2 Kings chapter 2 says, because he was not. Think about what this means for just a second. You're living in a world full of death, disease, and destruction, and you're watching the culture around you descend more and more in its corruption. And yet we see a man after God's own heart who's taken up by God, who does not die. 
Some people think that the Jews did not have a really firm understanding of life under, after death. Of course they did. Where is Enoch? He is in the presence of the living God. They all have a testimony that there is life after death. That death is not the final word. They have a testimony that God is the God of the living. And the wonderful news is, is that this does not just pertain to those two isolated individuals in the Old Testament who were saved by death. I know when I told you that statistic 10 out of 10 people die, I was rounding up. Because two out of however many billions and billions of people have not died and experienced death. But you know, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's trying to explain to him that before Abraham was, I am. Just before that, he said, Abraham saw me and rejoiced. How did, where was Abraham when he saw Jesus that he was being sent to save sinners? They rejected Jesus and said, you're not even 50 years old. What do you mean you've seen Abraham? And that Abraham testified to you. And his answer to their question was, before Abraham was, I am. That distinguishes Jesus, by the way. We all have life after death. And as believers, the promise of eternal life in heaven... But only Jesus existed before he was born. That testifies that he, this is God in the flesh who came to save sinners. He tells the thief on the cross who believed in him, Tru Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What's the hope for us while we wait? Is it that we suffer and die, and everything is undone? Are we told to hope in this life? Is that where our hope is supposed to reside? Our hope we're always called to is in God himself and what he promises us. Our hope is in the life that he offers us, which is eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks to the death of a believer that in Christ, the sting of death has been removed. What's the sting of, of death? Sin. We know for the believer that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the same is not true for the unbeliever who rejects Christ, who rejects God who instead spends their life indulging their own flesh, their own sinful desires. What they will suffer is the sting of death, sin. And God's curse when he promised death on that day that they eat from the fruit of the sin was not just referring to their body, but also is referring to hell. Death as separation from God for all eternity. That's the hope of escape that we have in Christ. And we have that proven to us from the very beginning that he who walked by faith lived still. See, the uniqueness of Enoch is that he was taken up. 
It's not that he walked with God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we're going to see that Noah walked with God. And actually, walking with God is definitional to the Christian life. What does our waiting as Christians look like? We experience pain, trouble. But we experience that pain and trouble not having our eyes turned on this earth, but living for God. It says, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10 tell us, After talking about knowing that our earthly tent, once it is destroyed, we have a building from God, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. He tells us in verse 5, that he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is repeated over and over again. Colossians 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul tells the Galatians, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18 of that same chapter says, If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. He talks about the works of the flesh being self-evident, being marked by lots of different sinful desires. But that those who do such things, verse 21, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You see, walking with God has always been definitional to the Christian life. And so you don't get confused. We already read Hebrews 11.5 that says, by faith. Enoch was justified. By faith he received his condemnation from God. For verse 6 tells us, For without faith it's impossible to please God. What we see in Enoch and every single believer is that salvation is a package deal. That when we embrace God in faith, that the same faith that believes in God and his promises is the same faith that can't help but express its gratitude to him. That no longer wants to live according to our own desires, but wants to read God's word, discover what his desires is. To not be conformed by, to this world, but Romans 12 verse 2 tells us, to, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Or, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. And guess what he's going to say here? That we should walk in them. Isn't that amazing? The Christian life is one of walking. Because what walking is, is defining a close relationship. Amos 3.3 says that two friends, that to be in agreement, to walk together, you have to be in agreement. You have to be walking in the same direction. That our whole life, when we embrace Christ by faith, is going to be marked by that communion with God. And it's not going to, it can't help but express its fruit. What the good works are, are testimonies of God's work of grace in our hearts. And it's evidence to us that God is at work in our hearts. And it's good works so that the world may see and proclaim the glories of our Father, the, His goodness, His power to redeem a sinner from death. Unless we just pass by. We're told in Jude verse 14 of what this faith looks like. Christian maturity, when I define it that way as a Christian walk, we might not have evangelism as part of that definition of maturity. We think about holiness in terms of the good works, and that is true. But what are those good works? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? Yes. But in the life of Enoch, walking by faith, verse 14 says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners spoke against him. What was Enoch doing in his life? What was the evidence marked that Jude tells us marked this mature man, a man who walked so close in communion with God that God took him up as an example. It was that he witnessed to the lost. He witnessed to people in the midst of an unbelieving age. An age in which, literally by the time we get to Noah, there's only going to be one person who has faith in the Lord. You thought our problem was hard. We live in a world that rejects Christ. You know, we're tempted to actually do the very opposite of what Enoch does. What does Enoch do when he's witnessing to the lost? He tells them of God's judgment. Why? Why would he tell the ungodly that they pervert God's grace to follow their own choosing? Why would he tell the ungodly that their deeds are evil? Why would he speak all the harsh things? Why would he speak such harsh language to sinners? It's because he loves sinners. That's why we tell people of their sin. We tell sinners of their sin because we know God's wrath upon sin, his justice. 
We know God in his justice will pay the wages of sin, which is death. It's unloving for us to simply gloss over our sin or in the sins of others. The most loving thing we can do for the world is bear witness to what God's word says to them. Not because we want to see them condemned, but because today, as long as they have breath in their lungs, is an opportunity for them to repent as part of God's kindness towards them. That's why the application in verse 20 of Jude says, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in this most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. This is what we're called to in the midst of our waiting. Christian maturity that is marked by communion with God, loving God, and loving sinners enough to tell them of their sin. And we will wait for until the fulfillment of all God's promises. That's that last blank there. That we will wait till the fulfillment of all God's promises. You see, we have, there's lots of different names here, lots of different meanings involved. But we see one in particular that really matters. That Lamech called his son Noah, saying, out of the ground, or literally that word ground is Adam, which is another word for ground. Out of the ground that the Lord God had cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You know, I want everyone at Evergreen to be able to get this question right. How were people saved in the Old Testament? Recently heard my professor say that there were a number of years ago, probably like 20 since I've heard him repeat the story, that there was an RTS, there was a professor that was applying for a position as Old Testament professor in, at a Reformed Theological Seminary campus. And when he came in, they asked him that question. How were people saved in the Old Testament? And he said, I knew about, five, about ten seconds into that conversation that this man was not going to get the job. Why? Because it took him over 15 minutes to explain basically this highly nuanced answer of saying, well, it's kind of complicated. The answer to that question, and what I want everyone in this room, people, every person in this room to be able to answer is how the, re, the how of Old Testament saints, of how they were saved, is by faith in God's promises, specifically of a Redeemer who was going to save us. That was what Eve believed. Genesis 3.15. And even here, that is what Lamech believes. That's how people have always been saved. Old Testament believers were saved the exact same way that we're saved today. The difference is of timing. They were saved by faith in God's promises of a Redeemer to come. And we are saved by God's belief in God's promises, trust in God's promises, by the Savior he's already sent. Everyone is saved by Jesus. 
and we are all waiting. You know, we still are waiting for the final day of our salvation. That's why the New Testament ends in Revelation 22, verse 20, that surely I am coming soon. Amen. Speak Jesus saying that. And the response is, come, Lord Jesus. There is still a day of repentance today. Salvation is still being held out to the sinner because judgment day hasn't come. You know, this is, in wrapping this up, this really shows us that the pattern of the Christian life really hasn't changed. We're still waiting, waiting in the midst of toil. We're still waiting, waiting while seeking communion with God, defined by faithfulness, and we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Basically, what I'm telling you is that this life is temporary. That our good works in this world cannot redeem the world. Only Jesus can do that. It can only mitigate evil in the effects of the fall. That's the best that we can do. And maybe that might tend to get you to think that this life is pointless. My pain and suffering don't matter to God. He's just letting me continue to suffer. It actually does the opposite for us. What does it mean that this life is temporary, that our hope is in heaven? This means that this life that we live is going to be our only opportunity for the rest of eternity to do good works for the poor. Because in heaven, there's going to be no more poor. To be kind to the sick. Because in heaven, there will be no more sickness. That this momentary life is an opportunity to live for God in the midst of a sinful world. To be a beacon of light to sinners. Pointing them to Christ. This world is our only opportunity to see the lost saved. That's an exciting thing. That's a joyful thing. That makes every moment of our temporary life filled with meaning. Knowing that God is going to use us. That well, we're going to walk by faith and not by sight. For 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. So that whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown yourself faithful time and time again. And even now as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for it's your rod and staff that comfort us. We know that you are with us in the midst of our waiting, no matter what pain comes our way. No matter how long that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. For one day we will behold the sight of the glory of your only begotten Son, the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you will stand with me, let us sing God's praises and enjoy the fellowship that we have.